Welcome to Crashing the War Party and Happy New Year. My co-host Daniel Larison and I are looking forward to getting right into the mix this week as the foreign policy turmoil in Eastern Europe continues to churn and the political rhetoric in Washington continues to ramp up defense budgets in anticipation of more great power politics in Asia. This week, we'll be talking to Ben Friedman of Defense Priorities about his new article, Don't Fear the Vacuum, It's Safe to Go Home, about reducing the military, U.S. military presence overseas. But first, let's talk about the shifting balance of power in Latin America. On Friday, the opposition legislature voted to terminate its interim government, ending the leadership of Juan Guaido who since 19 or 2019 had served as the face of resistance to the country's authoritarian government. As you remember, Guaido declared his party and as head, the head himself, interim president back in 2019, citing the illegitimacy of President Nicolas Maduro. The U.S. and Western powers backed him with the belief that his movement was strong enough to overthrow Maduro's regime, which had become despotic, driving the economy into a downward spiral, sending millions of Venezuelans to flee the country, many to the United States in recent years. But Guaido turned out to be an empty suit as well as an empty promise, and now Washington, as well as other Western powers, seem content to start working with Maduro to help enact reforms rather than pin their hopes on Guaido. His own peers obviously feel the same. So, Dan, there seems to be a lot changing in Latin America today. Washington is coming to terms with Maduro, while several governments in the region have new leaders willing to buck the West and cooperate with it as it suits, as they suit. This would include Brazil's new president, Lula da Silva, who has signaled that his country, while happy to work with the U.S., will be charting its own course in international relations. At his inauguration this weekend, Lula welcomed envoys from both Ukraine and the Russian Federation. So how much should we be reading into all of this, Dan? And what might this mean for the Biden administration uh, moving forward in, in 2023? Uh, sure. Uh, thanks, Kelly, and uh, Happy New Year. Uh, so the the decision by the opposition uh, legislators was... I think really an overdue one. Uh, they they finally admitted what had become obvious to a lot of people outside uh, of their camp uh, a long time ago, which is that Guaido simply didn't have the backing or the the influence inside Venezuela to to make the kind of difference that they needed him to make. Uh, and 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 really, why would he? He was he was installed uh, as. He, the representative of one of the, the smallest parties in the National Assembly, it happened to be his his party's turn to, to lead them. And so he was catapulted forward as the, the voice of the opposition, as the face of the opposition, when he didn't have uh, really uh, that much backing in the country. Uh, of course, initially there was a lot of enthusiasm for his cause because there was a hope uh, in Washington and in, I think in Miami uh, for a very quick uh, overturning of, of Maduro's government. But there, there was really a, a critical uh, error in, in assessing Maduro's staying power uh, that has led to the, the failure over the last four years that we've seen. Um, the, I think what, what it shows overall is that the, the policy of trying to isolate Venezuela to try to strangle them into submission has really run its course. It's, it's revealed its bankruptcy, both moral and political, 
uh, for all to see uh, as the broad sanctions that the U.S. has imposed on them over the last many years uh, have only served to make the humanitarian crisis, which was already quite bad, uh, even worse than it was. And so the and, and of course, neighboring countries have their own interests to look after, which is why you have the Colombian government now restoring diplomatic ties with Maduro, President Petro meeting with Maduro, which would have been unthinkable under his predecessor. Uh, and and uh, President Lula, as, as you said, in Brazil is also open to restoring those ties uh, in recognition that engagement is more likely to produce some sort of positive change than uh, the same old uh, approach of isolation and punishment. Um, and, and so I think the, the opposition has finally come to real, to recognize political reality. According to one recent survey, Guaido's popularity or approval in Venezuela had sunk to 5%, not, not 15, 5%. This is uh, as abysmal as it gets. Yeah. And so, uh, they, they now have an opportunity to chart a new course, uh, trying to negotiate with Maduro and deal with the the de facto government as it is, rather than try to pretend that they can somehow simply push it out of the way. Uh, and, and the U.S. should also be rethinking its Venezuela policy a lot more, too. Uh, the Biden administration got off to the right start at the end of last year by easing some sanctions. Uh, was very, there were very modest steps, granting a license to Chevron to resume production and, and exporting. Uh, but they need to go much faster and go much further than they already have gone. And I, I fear that there are a lot of people in Washington who look at the situation in Venezuela and think that the sanctions are somehow working to force Maduro to negotiate, when, when really Maduro is the one who has forced the U.S. and the opposition to the table. Uh, and so if, if they believe that sanctions have somehow worked or made progress, I, I think they're learning the wrong lesson. They, they need to move much faster with sanctions relief to aid the ordinary people of Venezuela who are the main the main victims of those sanctions um and and the u.s is going to have to face reality that maduro is the de facto president uh at least for the next couple of years if not longer and they're going to have to deal with him as he is um and so overall uh what i think we can take away from the last four years experiment in maximum pressure regime change attempts is that uh we our government shouldn't listen to ideologically motivated exiles. It shouldn't set unrealistic goals, and it shouldn't use a blunt instrument of sanctions to pursue those goals, which you'd think they would already know from past experience, but unfortunately we have to keep relearning these same things over and over. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, and I'm sure you remember, because it wasn't too long ago, but back in, it was in 2019, when uh, Guaido had declared himself uh, interim president with the backing of his party, that Washington was cheering him on. And it wasn't just the, the Trump administration, though that had a lot to do with it. That was fitting their narrative for regime change, obviously. But I feel like the old centrist neoliberal Democrats as well either had nothing to say or were cheering him on. And the mainstream media media was cheering him on. Here was a young I don't know how old he was at the time, like maybe 34, a young, fresh-faced um, purveyor of human rights and resistance to Maduro's despotism, you know, coming forward and, bring, and bringing people into the streets. And there were protests in the streets for, I don't know how long, maybe a week or so. Uh, 
until they until they dis- diminish. But there there really was a spirit in the air, like something was going to happen. That Maduro was going to be pushed out, and it took a while for the realization that that it, either it was going to happen and it was going to take. It was going to take a long time and a lot of work, or it was just pie in the sky. And if you remember, in in 2020, there was an actual um, attempt at some sort of military coup. Uh, this was, and I'm looking at Barbara Boland's piece in the American Conservative. This was back in May 2020 when there were a, there was a former Green U.S. Green Beret, American Green Beret. Uh, and who was also a three-time Bronze Star recipient for bravery in Iraq, had worked with a Venezuelan military exile, trained a bunch of guys out in Colombia, I believe, to 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 land on 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 the beach and take over, which they were hoping would lead. They would they would they would call for the arrest of Maduro and then bring in reinforcements. I don't know. It went all awry. Obviously, it was like the Bay of Pigs all over again, but even on a on a worse scale because there was like maybe a raft full of guys, and apparently these exiles, some of them warned Maduro's people ahead of time that they were coming, and it was a big joke. I don't know whatever happened to that Green Beret, but I know a few a few Americans were arrested in in the incident. But if that was all they had in terms of the opposition military opposition, the Venezuelan military operation, opposition to getting rid of Maduro, that wasn't much. It wasn't much at all. And I think that was the beginning of the end there uh, and the realization that this opposition was um, kind of a Potemkin village in a way. But it's unfortunate that Guaido had gotten so much support from Washington and Western governments. So we were literally propping up this guy when we probably should have realized like years ago that um, he was just, like I said earlier, a stuffed shirt. Uh, right. Well, and, and he was, the thing is, it, it's not even so much his flaws as a politician. He, he was one legislator in the opposition in a country where the opposition has traditionally not been very effective in opposing the the Chavista governments under both Chavez and Maduro. So he he was already starting from a weak position uh, from from the outset, and I think a lot of the the enthusiasm for his cause was based on extreme wishful thinking and a lack of understanding of the political landscape in Venezuela. Uh, I I uh, remember I've, I've read up on this uh, quite a bit and. One of the striking things about the Trump administration's approach is that they deliberately sidelined anybody that had any real experience in Venezuela because those are the people counseling caution. Yeah. And, and it was people like Marco Rubio av- avidly pushing the regime change line. And Trump thought he was going to get an easy win and he went for it. And then when it didn't work out, he basically just washed his hands of it and, and made fun of uh, Guaido and said he was like the Beto O'Rourke of Venezuela. And, and that was the end of the story. And but refer, coming back to the the issue of the, the bipartisan embrace of this policy, uh, you'll remember at Trump's I think it was his final State of the Union address, uh, Guaido was a guest of honor uh, there in the balcony, and the the whole chamber rose and gave him the standing ovation, and I mean that was probably the the peak of American endorsement of Guaido, and, and yeah. it led to, led to nothing. 
Uh, but it, but it's a reminder of how objectively inane, absurd policies like this one will get overwhelming support in Washington because it allows them to posture as uh, being an opponent of some bad government uh, as a way of, of pandering to certain voters or a way of, right. of showing off that they have these credentials as standing up against oppression when in practice they're they're not doing anything to make the situation better in fact with the sanctions that they support they have made things worse and continue to do so and so i I hope that the biden administration seriously overhauls this policy as quickly as possible i'm not very hopeful that they will but uh maybe i'll be wrong how much has the uh the war in ukraine impacted the strategy of the Biden administration when it comes to Venezuela and other Latin American countries, but specifically Venezuela being that it has all of this oil and um, they need them to open up now. Uh, yeah, well, I think it, it's definitely forced the U.S. to reconsider just how many economic wars it can wage at the same time. And it's also forced them to recognize that a lot of our neighbors in the Western Hemisphere don't always share our larger strategic objectives and aren't always going to fall in line behind our policy preferences. And and I think we're going to see more and more of that uh, with respect to Venezuela as these new governments come to power and begin starting a different course from the one that, the, that their uh, more uh, center-right and right-wing predecessors have uh, charted before. today is Ben Friedman. He is policy director at Defense Priorities and an adjunct lecturer at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. He's edited three books on defense policy and strategy and has published academic essays in International Security, Political Science Quarterly, Orbis, Foreign Affairs, and World Affairs. Welcome to the show. Welcome back. Thanks for having me on. Good to be back. Yeah, it's uh, great. always great to talk to you. And uh, we were interested in talking to you about uh, this new article that you have at Defense Priorities uh, came out, I think, last month. Uh, about why the U.S. shouldn't worry about security vacuums that may be created when the U.S. withdraws its troop from foreign wars. Uh, critics of withdrawals often claim that it creates an opening that will be exploited by rival major powers. Uh, you explain that it isn't true and wouldn't matter to U.S. security even if it were. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, uh, the the argument is that there's this uh, conventional wisdom uh, that says, uh, as you summarize, that uh, we're in danger when we leave various countries such as Syria, Iraq, or previously Afghanistan, or even regions like the Middle East, or in some sense, uh, Africa, even though we don't have much of a presence there, that if we leave, that is, uh, have fewer troops or less active in terms of our foreign policy, that, uh, that we'll leave a vacuum behind and some adversary usually our so-called great power rivals, China or Russia, will step in and gain something uh, that uh, is dangerous to the United States, that we're essentially seeding them, you know, like a piece in a, in a game that will be come back to haunt us. And uh, I've thought for a long time, the reason I wrote this paper is that it's not just that ar- that argument is wrong, it's that it's wrong in a kind of layered way. Uh, you know, the the first way it's wrong is that the if if you 
in a lot of places with the United States as forces, if, if they leave, it will make basically no difference at all because we don't have enough forces to really matter a ton for their balance of power. So, you know, U.S. military missions uh, in Niger and other parts of uh, sub-Saharan Africa, I think, probably fit that bill uh, where it's not that we probably won't leave any kind of vacuum behind, which is just a, uh, a lack of central power. And then the the next reason that the argument is wrong is that um, if there is a vacuum, which in some cases there certainly would be, as when the United States uh, left Afghanistan, uh, the the power vacuum would uh, be resolved to the benefit of local political powers, not other great powers or U.S. rivals that are equally uh, or nearly as distant from the country in question. So, uh, as in Afghanistan, uh, the it wasn't like some people claim that China somehow stepped into the breach and started reaping all kinds of rewards from the fact that the United States was no longer uh, fighting a futile war there. It was that the Taliban, who were one of obviously one of the local powers, along with the Afghan government, just took over. And I think, you know, if we left Syria, uh, it would probably uh, be to the benefit of the government of Syria, the Assad regime, Assad government. Uh, and so uh, oftentimes if, you know, that, that's how it would go, that the the local powers would benefit. So the you know, vacuum would be very temporary and uh, locally resolved phenomenon. And then uh, but I think the most important reason that we, sh- you know, the most important argument in the paper is basically that most of the places uh, that we have forces, uh, if indeed we left the vacuum behind uh, and if um, there is some way that China or Russia or somebody else could could gain something. It just doesn't matter uh, to our security. If they gain from uh, the vacuum, uh, it, it, it's uh, not a problem because most of the places the United States has military forces are uh, strategically irrelevant. The kind of places we send forces, the kind of places we deploy troops, as opposed to sort of our long-term missions in Europe and Asia, but the kind of places we deploy troops for war and then post-war occupational duties uh, tend to be poor and uh, struggle to have a coherent government and, you know, not the sort of prizes that you would expect an imperial power to hoover up um, and want to control. And if, if China or Russia, you know, wants to try to follow on for the United States and uh, in Afghanistan, which is totally unrealistic, uh, in Syria, where of course there are uh, Russian forces, or in Iraq, or something uh, like that, um, it, it's probably going to be their problem, just as it was our problem. You know, trying to take over in Syria, for example, is sort of a, a civil war management opportunity. You know, there's uh, we could have an argument about whether or not we should keep U.S. forces in Syria, but the idea that we should keep them there to keep Russia from uh, gaining something is bizarre. There's not really anything to gain from a strategic vantage point. So uh, th- those are the main arguments. And, and I think the final one kind of gets to this larger point that the territory just doesn't matter that much to the United States anymore for a bunch of different reasons. But, um, you know, there are some parts of the world that are more important and more uh, relevant to our security where there's a lot of wealth uh, and uh, trade ties. But uh, even there, I, you know, I think it, it's hard to make a case, you know, so in Europe or East Asia, it's hard to make a, the case given changes in technology and the fundamental 
security that the United States enjoys due to geography and military might, especially nuclear weapons, uh, it's hard to make the case that we need to be present really anywhere in the world in order to uh, be safe. So, you know, that that's not the only reason that we might, uh, that people might advocate to have troops in Europe or Asia or something like that. But this idea that, you know, somebody else is going to take over if we leave uh, and therefore we need to be there, I think, you know, is something that needs to be fundamentally rethought because we're so secure uh, and because uh, our rivals in China and Russia are just not capable of taking over enough territory that, you know, outside their home, that it would really threaten us. Sure. And, and well, because our, our security doesn't depend on being involved in these places, certainly not militarily involved in these places. Uh, it's, it's curious how this, this framing of great power competition has become one of the standard justifications for uh, maintaining this presence, whether whether it's in various African countries or in the Middle East. Uh, as, as you say, rivals today advancing their influence in what we now call the developing world is generally irrelevant to U.S. security. Um, so how has the obsession with great power competition become so central to thinking about U.S. involvement in these parts of the world? Um, what, what do you think is driving that? Well, I, I think the question uh, gets to a point that I, I, I want to make, which is that, you know, a lot of times we, we as analysts kind of have to take arguments, I think, you know, arguments that people make about why they prefer to keep troops somewhere or, you know, arguments for different U.S. foreign policies seriously. But I, I do think that oftentimes our, the arguments uh, are not entirely serious in the sense that people make these arguments about vacuums and so forth opportunistically. Uh, I don't think that that many people really thought that the reason, for example, that we should keep troops in Afghanistan after 20 years was was a vacuum, a uh, power vacuum that would open for uh, China or Russia or somebody else uh, to take over. I think they had other reasons that they wanted U.S. forces there, and they kind of come to this as a convenient argument to make because there's no rule in foreign policy punditry that says you have to make your uh, only make your best and most real argument and then stop there and not make other arguments, uh, you know, and, and not just in punditry and politics, right? Um, Joe Biden recently said we we can't leave the Middle East. We won't leave the Middle East uh, and leave a vacuum for our, our um, adversaries to fill. But so um, I think that it, it it's the argument is made opportunistically uh, by people who are concerned that the United States might be leaving the Middle East or leaving particular military engagements. And uh, it's sort of trendy to make the argument that, uh, you know, the, the real danger is vacuums. But it also it's trendy because it's it shows an exhaustion of the fundamental arguments that they have. You know, if, if you're th you think we should be in Syria because of overthrowing Assad based on some bank shot idea that if U.S. troops stay there, you know, we'll support the Kurds and uh, eventually the some uh, democratic force or something will take root. You, I think you, you've at this stage reached uh, the conclusion that nobody believes you uh, and that's not a good argument. So you say, well, you know, also it would, it would leave a vacuum behind. So I, I think it's just sort of a convenient argument uh, that people make to, to justify uh interventions uh and uh uh we have to take it seriously but at the same time you know kind of like domino arguments and in, in uh for vietnam you know be alive to the possibility that this is just sort of 
you know, a rationale that people throw on top of something they did for other reasons. Hey, Ben, thanks for coming on the show and happy new year. Um, is there, this makes so much sense to me and I think it makes sense to a lot of Americans, but is there any constituency in Washington to support even talking about getting, uh, troops out of certain places, whether it be the Middle East or Europe? Or are we facing a situation where you have this military industrial complex built up to sustain these levels of troops and equipment and weapon systems in other countries? And they would be hard pressed to ever think about reducing those numbers or those elements because that in effect would, would mean people's jobs might be at risk. So what is the, is there a constituency? What is it? And how can we, how can we make it bigger or or support it more uh, so that it has at least a fighting chance of maybe getting some reforms in this area? Well, part of the answer is something I should have said uh, in response to the prior question, which is, you know, this idea uh, of uh, great power competition uh, was used as a way during the Trump administration to try to shift, I think, at least some attention, if not forces, uh, out of the Middle East. Uh, you know, the authors of the Trump national security uh, strategy, at least some of them, uh, were hoping that they could focus on uh China and Russia, you know, and to me, it was always kind of silly because great power competition never went away. Uh, It it just, you know, arguably there's some intensified competitive elements due to Chinese at the China, China adding capability, but um, you know, great power competition is a continual feature of uh, international politics. And, and, uh, but so the point is it was uh, then thought that, um, we needed to, you know, focus. Uh, and so there was an, indeed a, a kind of constituency, which was, uh, quite well situated in the military industrial complex with people who, you know, think we're just messing around on the fringes of things, you know, in wars that should have ended a long time ago and, uh, you know, deploying hundreds, less than a thousand troops to Syria, you know, 2,500 troops to Iraq, not big missions in the, in the scale of the U S military in recent history, uh, and that, uh, we'd be better off shifting focus. And so, um, now things have changed, at least in this kind of rhetorical realm where we're, you know, the president of the United States dwells and, uh, you know, leading members of Congress where it's sort of, uh, you know, instead of great power competition is now seen to be a global endeavor, not one that requires you to shift. So uh, there's been this kind of rhetorical move of, uh, you know, oh, yeah, we're totally committed to great power competition. And that's why we need to uh, mess around in Somalia and Iraq and Afghanistan, not Afghanistan anymore, but uh, Syria. So, uh, but, you know, it shows that there is at least occasional glimmers of competition for resources within the military industrial complex, which is just a set of interests um, and uh, constituencies, special interests, really, that uh, have a have a shared preference for high military spending and an active uh, 
militarily active foreign policy. But, you know, that does leave room for disagreement. And I think that um, what we see often in, in our foreign policy is an effort to smooth over uh, those potential sources of friction by throwing money, of course, more money at the problem. You know, there there are always resource constraints and resource constraints create competition for resources and thus uh, can lead to some kind of intellectual competition for, you know, uh, one one set of military industrial complex uh, preferences versus another. But, uh, you know, when you boost the military budget by uh, $80 billion, uh, as I, I think is roughly yeah. the amount of this year, um, going into fiscal year 2023, which we're already in, uh, we, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. So it's sort of, you know, we spread it out across like, putting peanut butter in a sandwich, we spread out the money across all these constituencies uh, and uh, everybody becomes at least more happy and, and less prone to go after each other's little pots of gold uh, and, you know, articulate ideas like we need to get out of the Middle East to have a unnecessary military competition with China that might, uh, you know, create uh useful intellectual competition. So, you know, that's part of it. And and the other part is you have these horrendous documents like the national security strategy uh, that the Biden administration came out with, which says basically nothing except we need to do everything more and better and harder. Uh, and so it becomes, to the extent it's relevant at all, which I'm skeptical about, it becomes the security strategy documents just become these rationales for doing everything in a way to suppress these glimmers of, you know, comp resource competition within uh, the Pentagon and, you know, between the Pentagon and the State Department or, you know, people who want to uh, uh, do more to uh, spend more on military or on foreign aid to developing countries versus people who, you know, want to bomb Somalia more. You know, we, we, we just say it, it's all, you know, all good things are from our perspective, perhaps bad things go together. Uh, and, uh, we don't need to have any kind of, uh, competition between goods. You know, they're all mutually beneficial and you know, we can pay for everything with, with, uh, Nine hundred billion dollars, or eight hundred fifty-eight billion dollars, or a trillion dollars that we spend, depending on how you count in the uh, on our defense budget. How you know? How much more difficult is it for you to make these arguments writ large when we have this hot war situation in Eastern Europe? We now have what a hundred thousand U.S. troops in the region. I think that's what your particular article or a paper says, and probably more on the way. Uh, we've heard arguments uh, domestically, but also, you know, the prime minister of New Zealand said we couldn't do any, we couldn't have any security without the U.S. here helping us. I mean, it seems like the arguments that you're making here, which are so salient and so common sense, are being um, mitigated by in real time with what's happening in in Europe, I'm not saying that they um, they don't uh, just you're you're not justified. I'm just saying rhetorically, it's really hard to make these arguments when you have you know NATO, for example, saying you know we're we are reinvigorated, we're reunited, we have to be here for Ukraine and in in the in the future of Euro European security, uh, we are going to need more, more, more. And so, how do you? combat 
those rhetorical arguments to, to, to continue to make your very sal- salient argument for retrenchment. Yeah. Well, I think it was Elvis Costello who said uh, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. And uh, sometimes writing about U.S. foreign policy has a similar sort of, uh, I'm sure you guys feel that sometimes a similar kind of attribute where you, you feel like, okay, I made, I, made, I wrote a paper. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to expand on it in, in future writing. And I think I do a pretty good job dispensing of these arguments, but in some ways there's sort of a vibe, right? Uh, there's a feeling of, uh, which I think you're describing Kelly of, uh, you know, the United States back and uh, we're back because, we were able to give a lot of money to Ukraine and uh, they uh, have done a surprisingly good job uh, defending their homeland uh, against Russia. That doesn't really have anything to do uh, from an intellectual standpoint with, you know, what the rationale is for keeping us troops in Syria or really even what we're doing in the middle East, sort of a different, different kettle of fish. And uh, it really doesn't even have anything to do with adding uh, 20,000 troops in Europe, uh, which we sort of, I mean, it, it does in terms of we're thinking about fear of Russia, but it's got nothing to do with the success of the war in Ukraine. Uh, it's just sort of a gloss we put on our normal deterrent posture in Europe in a time of, you know, uproar and excitement. Uh, we sent a bunch of new troops there for based on some kind of fear that, you know, Russia would march on into Romania, not a really sensible thing. So, um, the the question is uh how do you fight against that uh kind of feeling and uh i think uh the answer is it's hard but uh you know part of it is just to sort of try to separate things out and say look you know the the uh if you're very happy about the success of the us uh effort to support uh ukraine uh that's that's not a reason to uh, get excited about keeping troops in Syria or Iraq. It's, it's, you know, it's, you can't just sort of do a cheer for America and say that's uh, a rationale for, for these uh, forces to stay in the Middle East forever. And uh, to try to say that these things are, are separate matters. So I'm sort of resorting to reason, even though I just said it's a limited, it has limited utility, but I, you know, I don't really know what else, what else we can do. Um, uh, but, uh, I think also that time, largely it's just people just stop paying attention to, to these issues, you know, at least from my perspective as someone who's in the beltway, you know, trying to pay attention to what's going on in Congress and, uh, in the kind of intellectual realm of, of, uh, beltway politics, at the beginning of the Biden administration, people were still talking about what, what are we doing in Syria? And, you know, the we had gotten to this very partisan point where the Trump administration, as a result of not leaving Syria, but talking about leaving, you know, Trump sort of pulled troops out and then kept them there. And that created this partisan, heavily partisan backlash where everybody on MSNBC said it's a terrible betrayal of uh I don't know, everything that's just and and good in the world to leave Syria after we defeated the ISIS enemy that we were there to help the, after we and our allies there defeated the uh, ISIS enemy that we were there to help defeat. 
but uh, now it's just you, you can't even find a news story about what's going on in Syria. The fact that we have, I think, 2,500 troops in Iraq seems uh, totally uh, irrelevant and boring to people who yep. consume news. Uh, and uh, so it's not like there's been this big outbreak of support uh, for what we're doing in Syria uh, and Iraq and you know, the, the Biden administration also reversed the Trump administration decision and said we're we're gonna keep uh force ground forces in, in Somalia, not just bomb them from the next country over, which was what the we shifted to under Trump. Uh and there's no attention paid to that. So this I, I'm hoping, however, uh that with time, uh as uh you know, either happily in, in you know, the best case circumstance would be the war in Ukraine ends. That seems unlikely at the moment, but uh, at least, you know, people's consciousness will go back and uh, get interested in these other areas of the world and U.S. foreign policy. And then uh, we can start to make a little more headway with arguments like the one the ones I laid out here. I, and, I, and I hope so. They're, they're very good arguments, and I, I recommend uh, the piece to everyone. Uh, again, it's uh, at Defense Priorities. Don't fear vacuums. It's safe to go home. Uh, ben Friedman, thanks very much. And uh, we look forward to having you back on the show again soon. Yeah, good to talk to you guys. Uh, thanks, Ben. Bye. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. <laughs>